welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to let you know that this episode and next episode on Friday will be the last of the Friday episodes. And so what I thought I would do is a reflection on the conversations that I've had, what I've learned, what I loved, and just offer my perspective, I suppose, on the various conversations. And I would like to say a big thank you to this community for being here, for my guests, for sharing themselves so honestly and openly. And yeah, thank you. This was a little passion project to get me moving and my brain going in isolation. And it's really shown me that what I have to say matters. And I'm hoping that for my guests, it's shown them too that their stories are empowering and what they have learned in life is worth sharing. So this is a little excerpt from the very, very first episode called What is After the Bell and Who is Educating Laura? And I say this at the very end of that monologue. At my core, I'm a teacher and I love to encourage discussion and I love to get people to think for themselves. I'm here to offer thought-provoking comments, thought-provoking discussion, and that is what I'm hoping to present to you through this podcast. Taking the ability to move away from that emotion and see it from a place of neutrality and to deconstruct it and criticize it, analyze it, allows you to find your truth. And to me, that's what a teacher should be doing to help you, to help the individual, to help the student find their truth and to give them the skills to do that. A few weeks ago, I posted a quote from Phoebe Waller-Bridge and she said, I always ask myself, what would I write if I wasn't scared? And so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm creating this podcast to put myself out there because who knows how this is going to be received, but I'm going to try and do something, even though I'm a little bit intimidated, even though I'm a little bit afraid of reactions, even though I'm a little bit scared that it's going to go nowhere, I'm going to put it out there anyway. It's so interesting for me to listen to that now because I truly had no idea what I was doing. And I still remember uploading that first episode and it taking hours to work out the formatting and how to get the image up, and what day I was going to be uploading, and what all of the analytics behind the scenes meant. And it is so funny, isn't it, how far you can come in such a short time, because that episode was released on the 8th of August 2020, which is not that long ago, four months ago, and there's already been well over 3,000 downloads. So if I've learned anything, it's give it a go. It's worth giving something a go because you really never know what can come of something or what you might find out about yourself. Now, this next episode was called Dance Like No One Was Watching. And I named it that because Jess, who is in the episode, was one of my dance students when I taught dance at school. In fact, she was in my very, very first dance class that I taught on my very first day of teaching. And it was very strategic to have Jess on first not only because she knew me as a teacher but also because she is now a qualified psychologist and mental health is a really really big passion of mine 
and something I'm hoping to continue to work with in schools and to support more in schools and to develop more curriculum around in schools somehow. If you want to work with me, let me know because I'm not quite sure the how of it, but I would really like to do more. And she works as a psychologist at a school. And so I really wanted her perspective, not only as an ex-student of mine, but as somebody working in the mental health capacity in the mental health field with young people today. I had a student say to me on Monday, and it was the most profound thing that a student has said to me in this time. And she said, if my grades have to suffer at the detriment of, you know, of my happiness, then so be it. She was like, I would rather me be happy and my grades not be as good as they could be then go through this year and feel like I don't have anything left to give and for me it was just a moment of yeah actually (laughs) this is the messaging we need to send Uh, you know six weeks isn't going to impact our kids learning too much we can catch up what can be really detrimental though is our mental health and if that continues to decrease that can be something that takes a long time yeah. to to treat and to rectify and to get back to where you are. So my advice would be put your health first, physical and mental, and then everything else will come. You know, six weeks isn't, you know, it's a really, really difficult time. And I get the pressures and I understand the concerns and the importance of what other people place on different things. And that's okay too, but just remember that if we're not physically and mentally healthy, then this is going to be a really, really challenging time. So just perhaps readjusting those expectations and those priorities during this time, I would say. It really is such a privilege to be able to sit on the other side of these young people that I once taught and to listen to their perspective and their knowledge and the way that they see the world. And I mean, Jess is now much more highly educated than I am in terms of tertiary qualifications and it is a real privilege to have had her on the podcast sharing her insight now this next guest and this is still the most popular episode according to all the analytics at the back end of this podcast and I love this episode Nat for me is a safe space she has always been incredibly encouraging and open and honest and generous as a teacher and I know that all of her students love her not because she is their friend but because she gets them and she makes them feel seen and I think she does that for her friends too I certainly feel like that in her presence and so I've picked two little excerpts from her episode because there really is a lot she discusses her own personal learning challenges the benefits of going to a difficult or more challenging school and how she hopes teachers interact with their students the episode is called rise to the challenge what do you believe the role of a teacher is? For me, and it could not have it could not have been more apparent to me this year than any other year, it's the idea of developing a unique voice in a child rather than putting my voice onto them. I could not stress that enough. It's and I've always believe that way in my first five years of teaching I was trying to be the strict like full-on teacher this is how it is and it's not my way like I am I'm much more of a sarcastic person and as soon as I stopped fighting against my natural instinct I became a better teacher Mm. I don't think I liked who I was when I was in my first five years but as soon as I let go of my own ego and realized that 
they are very intelligent individual people who come from various walks of life who can teach me just as much as I can teach them, sometimes more. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm having a serious issue with technology, the kids are all over it. Yeah. There's they, they teach me things that I don't know and I think it's important for me, particularly as an English teacher, to allow kids to develop a voice but to also understand the importance of listening to others and just because someone doesn't think like you doesn't mean that they're wrong mm-hmm. yeah I think that's the main role is no matter what yeah. you teach actually is to let the kid develop who they are and this next part I think is really important and I think something that you learn with experience is have a plan have an understanding of where you're going but be willing to sacrifice that for greater learning to occur and I love what Nat says here and it's funny because in my first Mm -hmm. couple of years I planned like every new teacher does to the point where it was actually insane Uh and now I don't plan my lessons at all I plan my resources so I will be like okay they're going to use this handout Mm -hmm. at some point but I I don't plan my lessons at all now I literally walk into class and if I've got a whiteboard marker great but I barely use it. I The amount of times I take my backpack to class and have stuff in it and I don't open it once, then I'm like, well, that was a waste of time and space because, yeah, like I don't – and you see it too when the electricity goes off mm. and people panic because they can't get their laptop and it's like, no, no, just talk to them. <laughs> It'll be okay. <laughs> that might have seemed like a really simple thing to include but – We are not told enough to just talk to the kids, just get to know your students and allow them to be much more part of the conversation and a part of their own learning. And that's why I wanted to include that part, just talk to them. Now, this episode is called Our Talented Youth and is a conversation I had with Elliot, who was halfway through year 12 at the time and a budding musician. And I'm including this part because this is actually going to shift my teaching when I go back into the classroom in 2021. And I hope that it has just as much impact on you as it did on me when I heard it. So, mm-hmm. and you know, and I feel like if a teacher, if you have that mm-hmm. sort of bond where you can, you feel comfortable talking to a teacher about home life, then you've obviously got that really strong bond. And when you when you have a strong bond and you have a strong relationship, then, it, then you're backing onto you want to be motivated and you want to do more work. So I feel, yeah, if you, if a teacher can help, like, have that influence on you, then you're just going to be so much more motivated to do school. Yeah, I understand that. So other than creating that relationship, <laughs> what else makes a good teacher? Being open-minded, because especially in today's society, so many people have so many different opinions on things. So if a teacher's able to sort of take in different opinions views and values on a certain situation and not just completely go with their opinion then that makes them so much like it makes not only the class more enjoyable but it makes like obviously them better as a person like for example Mm -hmm. especially in English or literature so if teachers are able to be open-minded when they're reading your essays and understand where you're coming from but not necessarily agree with it but is still able to fairly mark the piece, then it shows that they have like mm. a very strong, I guess, very strong sort of character and mm. very open-minded, I suppose. <laughs> I just repeated myself, but yeah. <laughs> so relationships, open-mindedness. How is it that you like to receive information in a class? What's engaging for you? So 
I'll just say what isn't engaging for me because I find that much easier. For example, with essays and stuff, when teachers write feedback on the sheet, I don't read it. I just look at my mark and I put it aside and I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. But if a teacher mm-hmm. comes over and talks to you and gives your feedback verbally, then that works a whole lot better for me because I'm actually listening and I'm taking it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's definite, that definitely works for me. The next episode that I want to include is with a childhood friend of mine who we grew up together. She's a primary school teacher and is just an incredible operator. She has four children, had a newborn through remote learning and is also back in the classroom. And I love asking the question, what do you believe the role of a teacher is? And I love Kate's response. The episode is called Primary Teacher, Friend and Parent. So I think the role of a teacher is really to inspire lifelong learning. And without that skill, where's their future? Because learning never stops. And and I've said it already, but students really need to be happy and equipped with the emotional resilience to deal with life, along with practical mm. skills, you know, being able to organise themselves. And it starts in prep. I've taught prep out of those 16 years. For about 14 years, I've taught prep. And, you know, just teaching them to be organised and independent and know, have I put my lunchbox in? Do I know how to pack my bag? All of those skills as basic as they sound, if they don't have those skills then, you know, you wouldn't see it at secondary school. Yeah. The ones that yeah, the ones that can't organise yeah. themselves. And you think how are they going to function as adults in society without those skills? And another thing, I think our role as a teacher is changing so, so much. And I, I think back to when I started at a particular school, we did a lot of wondering and, you know, students would ask a question and we'd often not answer it for them. We'd say, What do you think? Well, I think that those days are changing. And as a teacher, our role is more, Mm. well, how are you going to access that answer? Yeah, We're more dealing with the Google generation because that's what their answer is now. You know, I'd try and answer, oh, I wonder wonder how that tree does grow that way or why does it grow those fruits? And now they just say, Google it, just Google it. And so for us as teachers, our role now is how to get students to use that information which we all have access to because we've all got phones we've all got the internet and how to use it creatively and uniquely in order to function in their jobs in the future however that may be will they have one job will they have multiple how will they be skilled in the future I'm not sure how that will look it's such an interesting point because if I consider my own schooling And the subjects that I took, especially at secondary school, much of the curriculum hasn't shifted that much. And yet, when I became a teacher, the iPhone was launched very early in my career and everybody has the internet in their back pockets at all times with all of the resources at their fingertips. And I think that there needs to be such a shift in curriculum to accommodate all of that and I do see a number of educators out there trying to future proof the next generation and anticipate the skills necessary but it's so hard with technology moving at the rapid rate that it is it is a challenge and I think that educators are in this really strange place trying to anticipate a future that is so hard 
to grasp right now because it is rapidly evolving. I do see, however, that most educators I speak to are really hoping that the curriculum moves to a skill-based focus rather than content. And I think that if you have a skill and you have the ability to transfer that skill, then that's where we have more of an ability to future-proof. Now I'm including this part of the conversation I have with Bailey from the episode Not So Mainstream because you can hear our mutual respect for one another and the fact that although we don't necessarily come from the same place and the same understanding, you can hear how gracious she is with my differing opinion and my differing ideas about fashion and I'm so grateful for conversations like this where you can say things that are not meant to be offensive, but certainly could be seen that way. And having someone else educate you and open your eyes and allow you to grow a, a different perspective. And I really, really appreciate it about this conversation and particularly this part of the conversation. Yeah, and as I said, look, as a consumer, I think it's an interesting conversation for me to have, obviously. And I do, I've become so much more aware in the last few years how my money is ultimately where I can, is ultimately where I have power. Right. Where I put my money is powerful. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I hadn't really thought about it much before, but, you know, it, it is, you know, where I choose to put my money in terms of food, in fashion, in, you know, where, I, if I, what bank I use, all of those things, that's where my power comes from, really. Yeah. Even though, um, I mean, like, as a, yeah, I think it's showing like a power in the people and even, you know, with the BLM movement, it's, you know, support businesses owned by, you know, black professionals and, and, and things like that, that, you know, we kind of go, oh, I don't really have enough money to donate. It's like, well, then, you know, buy something that you otherwise would buy here. Yeah. And, and it just does show that we have so much more um, power in those kind of areas than we than we thought. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. I was mentioning this to you before. So you put up an IGTV today with your new denim <laughs> yeah. top. And I loved it, but the first thought in my mind was, I wish I could wear that. And I was having this sort of little chat with you today about the fact that that's problematic in itself. Like, why do I wish I could wear that? Why do I want to be uncomfortable in something to look a certain way or whatever? How do you want to make your client feel? And I don't mean that in a in a negative way. Obviously, your clothing is beautiful and some of the things are beautiful, but some of the things are very high fashion that I, you know, as a young mum at home... Right, yeah probably couldn't wear it so what is it that you're trying to go for with your fashion label I mean I think it's interesting that I mean I think in a way I can't get my head around why you wouldn't think that you could wear those things I mean but maybe that's just coming from my bias perception because I'm like I feel great in these things why wouldn't you feel great in these things and (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um yeah I mean it look it really depends I think I think definitely our piece is probably slant to a younger audience which um maybe that's just because of my age group and what I feel comfortable wearing and maybe if I was in my 30s designing I would design different kind of things but I mean some things are high neck some like I mean that denim top is very plunging but I think it's it's interesting because I think the designs are pretty curated to what I've decided works for me which might be an issue but then Mm. I also think growing up I mean I had zero boobs and and growing up it was like oh you, don't, you have to be have boobs to be sexy and and 
So I kind of went, oh, I'm just going to wear the things that maybe girls with really big boobs couldn't wear or that I can get away with, like maybe something really high necked or something really plunging and just kind of taking a space of my own and going, this is something that is a little whimsical or chic or, or whatever. So um, I think I haven't really thought too much about that. And, and maybe it's a problem that I'm basing it too much on my body type and what I feel comfortable in because there's already a lot in fashion that's kind of you know um skewed to my body type but um I suppose I don't really see much of an issue with me crafting things that I feel good in but maybe it is an issue if there's not enough diversity around to make it an even playing field if that makes sense I think it was more it was more a problem I think for me in that do you not know only because where did that thought come from? Right. Which is then why then I wanted to have this conversation with you about beauty and fashion and all of that kind of stuff because I've still, as you know, a woman in my 30s, had two children, you know, my body's done some pretty great things. Yeah. I still have that little thing in my head that goes, I'd like to look more like that or I'd like to be able to wear that and look like that. And so I'm wondering, I'm, uh, look, I'm really... <laughs> I'm really trying to figure out what I'm trying to say here, Bailey, because it's not a criticism, as I no. said, it's more an exploration for me. And what I think is interesting is that you've gone in a similar way in that, well, I was told in order to be sexy or beautiful, I had to have this. Yeah. And so in a way, I always think that we're coming from a similar place. Yeah, absolutely. But landing in a different, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? We're so weathering I, the same storm, so but we're in so- different boats, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, we're just, no, well, we're just in different bodies. Yeah. That's it. But we are, I think we are because you were told for such a long time that to be sexy or attractive or womanly, you have to have X, Y, Z. And, you know, as a five foot four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly, is exactly what I wanted when I was growing up. I wanted to be like cute and petite, you know, like <laughs> not gangly and six foot, you know. <laughs> so this is the whole point, And this is what I'm trying to deconstruct now, just in this conversation is that we can both see, I look, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but we can all see beauty in each other, right? We can always, and as you say, like, why couldn't yeah. we wear that? Perhaps I'm more critical than I should be, and perhaps I should be more accepting of what it is that I embody. But I think that the fashion industry does provide some of those triggers for us um, in many ways. Oh, completely. Mm. I have made a real conscious effort to ensure that I'm not speaking purely to educators. And I love the fact that I have had the opportunity to discuss education, teaching, school with students, current students in the classroom. And Amy and Josh, Josh I've tutored since year nine and he is finished now but was in the middle of year 12 when I interviewed him with his friend Amy. And I think it is important to acknowledge what they lost as year 12s in their year 12 year, their final year of school. And to hear how gracious these two are, it just gives me such a warm feeling in terms of how resilient our young people are and have had to be in this global pandemic. I've just heard ever since I was in like year seven or in year 12, all you've got to do is study all week. So before COVID started in year 12, I was staying at school until like eight o'clock every night just to study and get it all done. Because the way I'd planned my mind out was that if I studied all day in the week, I could have the weekends off to obviously go to 18s, parties and formals and stuff. So I just kind of expected, I knew it was going to be a hard year with study, but I feel like every year 12 is prepared for that. 
because then you can celebrate Mm. on the weekend that you've just finished a school week. Mm. So do you think that's been the hardest thing is not having those celebrations to look forward to? It's definitely decreased my motivation because I just feel like every day is the same day and there's not much to look forward to. But I've been trying to do exercise every day to like get out of the house and change it up a bit. But yeah, the motivation's definitely not as much there as it was at the start of the year. Well, what do you think would have motivated you had it been a normal year? Well, I guess for me, because I, I dive um, for two hours every night. And the thing for me ever since year seven was I would get home from school. I knew I had to study for three hours. Otherwise, I wouldn't get it done because I had to go to diving. That was a commitment. And now that I don't have anything on, I'm like, after I I have the whole night, I can start studying at six. Yeah, and just, I reckon just not having that reward for sport in general, like, that's not even occurring anymore. And that was like, you kind of get away. Yeah, not having that really, like, demotivates a lot of people. And like, I don't know, just with your friends in general, like, you don't really appreciate it till, like, it's gone. Yeah, like, just having, like, that little glimpse of, like, hope of, like, having some little sport being played and just having that ripped from you is really, like, demotivating it hasn't really made me like wanting to participate as much more as I could in school at the moment absolutely and I mean it was your 18th when was it mid-year wasn't it yeah I mean Amy had the similar birthdays she's just bit for me what were you expecting to do for your 18th birthday well before corona I'd like spoken to mum and I'd organized an 18th that I wanted to have and I was really excited for it and obviously we had heaps of upcoming events like formals and stuff and we just had so much to look forward to so I was really excited for my 18th. Yeah of course and what about you Josh did you have much planned? No not really just like obviously to share a couple moments with my friends during the week or something but nothing too extra. And how was it? How were your 18th birthdays? I was lucky enough with the restrictions to have like eight people at the time so like I had like Amy and a couple friends over which was good. It didn't really last long. Mm. Yeah, it was good enough for like everything to happen. That's good. And what about you, Amy? Did you feel fulfilled at least in some way for your 18th or it kind of went by a bit? I mean, my birthday was at the end of April, so I was in like full lockdown. But I still had such a good day because it was, I mean, obviously we were in lockdown at the time, so... There was nothing really happening, but all my friends did a drive-by from my house and Josh came over for dinner and it was just nice to like change something up. I, I actually had a really good day. And that episode was called To Like, Be Happy. Now this next excerpt is from an episode called Balance is the Gift and I asked this particular person, Dean, to be on the podcast quite early because I knew that he would have so much to say as a gifted academic student who was always going to do well academically, I loved the fact that he was able to reflect on other elements that were actually just as pivotal in his life, as well as the impact of being seen as academic and how that can create an identity that perhaps isn't as authentic as you think it is. He has now finished medicine and is moving in in 2021 to his role in a hospital. So he has followed that pretty standard academic path and I really wanted to offer him the platform to discuss the fact that on paper he looks one way but obviously there's much more lying under the surface. I was wearing a very, very dirty uh, graduation outfit and essentially as I came out of the um, the spaceship and, you know, struck my pose and had to talk about what I was going to be in the future... (laughs) I decided that I was going to be a lawyer because I was good at arguing with people. Not that at, at that age I was arguing with anyone because I was very conformist. I did what I was told. Uh, I did my work diligently. I wasn't confrontational at all and I was a good little boy by all senses of the word. But I thought that being a lawyer would be cool. I'd seen it on TV. It seemed like a, a job that there 
higher echelons of society would kind of undertake and therefore that was something that potentially was right for me and so skip forward into year nine and year ten this probably translated through high school a little bit not necessarily just with four but I had this idea that because I was an academically gifted student I needed to go into a, a profession that was inherently seen as potentially being something that was academic or difficult to get into so that was law that was engineering that was you know in commerce all that kind of stuff so I don't think I'd ever really kind of deeply contemplated what I wanted to do I was very much being guided by the society that we were in my parents my teachers in terms of being someone who performed academically that meant that you need to go to university you need to get into a course that is difficult to get into and you're going to take the job essentially that comes after that for me probably more accounting engineering I was someone who was good at math those people do things with numbers that's what you'll do so I think that's what I had in my mind back as a 15 16 year old one of the other questions that I love to ask is the idea around the biggest lessons. And I definitely don't frame this as school lesson or academic lesson, but more life lessons. And I chatted to Taj and Lisa, who are the brains behind Assessly, which is a assessment program for teachers, by teachers. And it really is to inform best practice. So it's not a marketing tool. It is not to be given to parents. It's purely for teachers to get a good understanding of what dot points in terms of curriculum and skills the students are hitting, what's perhaps lacking, how best practice has to be informed. And I mean, it just goes to show as an educator that there's so much you can do to further education that is beyond the classroom and these guys are so so passionate and I love their answers to the question about big life lessons to hear more from them go to their episode assessly impressed me what are some of the big lessons in life that have really shaped you or made you learn more? So this journey in the past year has been a pretty massive learning curve yeah. I'd say but another thing would probably just have to be just some of the hard times in my life has just been around the support and the, the, the value in relationships and friendships and family. That's really important. The value in just having good people around you, you know, and just even just starting this Absolutely. company, you know, we've got like Taja's sister is a teacher and she's just yeah. been so supportive. She created her own Instagram account so that she could like support and share our company, like, and just share it with her teacher friends. And can I be honest? I'm sure it was through her stories that I heard of oh, you. Oh, there you go. To be honest. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. <laughs> so, I mean, she's she's loving Instagram right. now anyway for, you know, for her own journey. But, like, she originally joined to support us. So that means a lot to us to have people like that in our corner. And, you know, that helps yeah. when you're trying to start a new venture. <laughs> yeah, of course. They're so important. Yeah. Over to you, Taj. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, look, I couldn't agree more with um, Lisa on that. You know, relationships are the most important thing. You know, without them, nothing else matters. But my biggest lesson I've learned, and I learn a lot, is that nothing's ever really wasted. No opportunity's ever really wasted. Yeah, okay. You know, when you're kind of in, in right in the in the crap, or things are mundane, or you're you know, they actually turn out to be surprisingly useful somewhere okay. somehow. So whether you know that's waiting for your child to to get their own pajamas on, and it takes five minutes, even though you want it done in five seconds, 
you're developing yeah. your patience. People who are different that come come up against you and you don't quite understand their perspective, but it forces you to understand their perspective. So every opportunity is an opportunity, yeah. I think. That I like that. And I like the opinion one, actually, today. because even if you never get to understand their perspective, it actually allows you an opportunity to really understand why you think what you think too. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Challenge you to go, no, well, I do believe what I believe. It cements that, you yeah. know, it gives you that resolve. Now, this episode called Calculus Careers and Roadmap aired is with Kim Whitty, and she is one of my favorite finds on Instagram. So she has her own business called Roadmap Ed and she is a maths teacher, careers counselor and is now working for herself so that she can be home with her family. And I love the fact that she is trying to really openly discuss the flaws about VCE, ATAR scores and encourage students to not see an ATAR score as an intelligence test, but as an avenue, only one avenue. And she's amazing at creating pathways that allow students to do what they love, even if the ATAR score isn't met. And I think that's really, really important. She says, you don't need a good ATAR score or a better ATAR score. You need a better plan. And I couldn't agree more. We did a live together. I have so much respect for what she's doing. And she really just knows her stuff from the math side of things as well as being a trained careers counsellor. And I think she even says it in an episode, the fact that she is a teacher allows her that other side, that ability to empathise. And also she didn't take a direct path into teaching either. And so I think that that life experience allows her to be just an incredible careers counsellor. She does have a community for parents as well. So if you are a parent of a student going through VCE or even someone who wants to change courses if you're at university, look into her. She's amazing. We also both talk about that shift from being the performer in the classroom to being part of a community with our students and having to shift our own understanding of teaching because we no longer wanted to teach the way that it was modeled. So it's a really, really rich conversation. And I love how she talks about representation in maths, especially as a female. I kind of like the idea that I'm not your average maths teacher. So <laughs> particularly like teaching specialist maths and things like that, you walk in as a young woman and, you know, you go to any PD or, and, or even walking into class and the kids are just like, oh, isn't our maths teacher here today kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, right. And then they, yeah, and then they, but then they get to know you and I, like, I know for certain. So at my first school I was teaching specialist after a lo- lovely, lovely specialist maths teacher retired and he was, you know, an older guy. But when I took over, there had been no girls in the class for years and then there were girls as soon as I was the teacher there. And yeah, I think that, that that says a lot about the fact that people need to see themselves, you know, reflected in what they're what they're yeah. looking at. And yeah. you know, like because people often say, like I had kids often tell me, and my English teacher friends would always, you know, say that it was a compliment. They're like, you look like an English teacher, you don't look like a math teacher. But yeah, yeah to be able to, yeah. to go in there and just give them a different perspective, I think. Yeah, I, mm. I really enjoy that. Katie is another educator that I found on Instagram. Her handle is education. And the episode that she is in is called Inspired a Nervous Pre-Service. And I have to 
acknowledge how brave she is as a new grad not in her own classroom doing CRT work in 2020 which was as we can imagine incredibly disruptive to come out on an education podcast with a teacher with far more experience and give the perspective of a pre-service teacher and I was so grateful I know that she was nervous and she didn't need to be because she's so incredibly insightful she has a real focus on mental health and I love the free resources that she puts up and I do do a shout out to that on the episode but I think pre-service teachers again another demographic that's often talked about and I think it's important to give a platform to teachers going through the process of being educated to be classroom teachers and is it the right way are we preparing them well enough I mean I know from my perspective that that first year was a whirlwind and I mean, I would personally love to see it be more of a traineeship or more time in the classroom. And I think that I wanted to understand again what it was really like and to hear from someone much closer to it than I am being so far removed from university. And I'm wondering if you can offer any advice or any kind of words of wisdom for mentor teachers just to try and relate to student teachers again. I think the most important thing is if they have a choice in taking on a student and you don't feel ready or it's a bad time or anything like that, then please just don't take on the student if you feel that you're not in the right space because it can do more harm than good. I think one negative experience can kind of ruin a pre-service teacher's confidence and even perception of the whole career completely. Mm. And I think I speak on behalf of pre-service teachers, but I think we're all nervous going into it and it can be so intimidating. So please just be patient and supportive (laughs) when you're taking us on. The last episode I want to showcase in this part of the 2020 wrap up is the practical leader where I interviewed Jo, who has had many roles, obviously as a classroom teacher, but also in student management as head of curriculum, whole school curriculum, and also assistant principal positions. And I've always really appreciated her perspective because I find that she really is in amongst the staff. I don't find her to be a top-down leader. I actually find her to be a leader that works with staff and speaks to staff and ensures staff are heard. And I think that that's what leadership is, and I hope that's where leadership is certainly going. And I've always appreciated from Jo that She's never been condescending despite the experience and the education that she has. She's constantly reading more educational books and doing her research. She never stops learning. And I do love, though, that she's very practical in the way that she filters out educational research. It's not just buzzwords and jargon. It's actually what is our problem? What are some of the things that we're not doing well? What are some of the things that staff actually want support with? And let's focus in on the research and the professional development that we can do that targets what our staff need. And I've always really, really appreciated her for that. Whenever you're looking at educational research, you also need to think about the context of your school and your students themselves. And Think about what research is going to be the most important for the, I guess, Mm. the issue that you're dealing with and making sure that 
and it's I guess it acts as a bit of a filter because there is so much research that could be drawn on um, in teaching and I think that trying to identify the issues that are most pertinent and identifying the research that will be most effective in helping you to develop a plan for addressing that and I guess that's where the hands-on experience comes into it is thinking about how what issues are being experienced by the students and the teachers in the school and then using the research as a tool to plan to to address those but not expecting the research itself is going to address the issue like it has to be a planned and, and measured approach and looking at what we can learn from the research to best inform what we're doing yeah you know the research isn't going to yeah. fix the problem itself and this last part is just the honest truth about teaching that sometimes these great lessons come out of an idea that you came up with on the way to class and sometimes these lessons that you have spent hours planning with perfect laminated resources are complete flops and it's all about the kids in the room at the time and we're all just searching for that great lesson and sometimes we have to make do with an okay one or by abandoning that lesson plan and that key dot point that you wanted to cover in that lesson you make way for something much more exciting every time I've taught something again the next year or the next semester or whatever it may be I change it and I adapt it and that's I think that's a really important part of teaching and I think sometimes a failed lesson can give you just as much insight as a really great lesson absolutely some of my best lessons like I still can't even say why they were like because it wasn't I didn't go into them going this is going to be my best lesson that I've ever taught and the kids, I know it's going to be a dead poet society moment where they stand up on their tables and... I'm still waiting for that. Often the often, same. No, still, you know. They lied to us. I'm sure we'll get it, Laura. I'm sure yeah. at some point we will have that. I'll call you. I'll call you when it happens. Yeah, you'll be the first to know. But I think often the best lessons are the ones that you don't realise are going to be that good because... yeah. A lot of what works in a lesson requires the students to connect Mm. to what you're doing and sometimes you're surprised by what will connect students and what won't. Yes. Jo says in her episode a number of times that education shouldn't be done to the students, it should be done for the students and with the students. And I think if I really consider that, teachers are the same, that we don't want to be dealt curriculum without being part of its cultivation and development and I think to educators want to be part of the conversation students need to be part of the conversation we need to create stakeholders within our students and I have some really exciting conversations coming up around that and we talk a lot about student agency and I'm hoping certainly that that's where we're moving and that schools become much more community based rather than the head down approach of leadership because I think that the more we're involved and invested the greater we'll be able to move together and I think 2020 has shown that you know community investment certainly creates great rewards and results so thank you again for being with me in 2020 For being a part of this community, I still have the second half of the 2020 wrap up where I will showcase 
short parts of all of the other episodes with my incredible guests. But I do want to say without you guys downloading and listening and commenting and subscribing, I wouldn't feel the need to keep putting this out there and it is your support that really encourages me so thank you I hope you're getting a lot out of it if you'd like to work with me or to be on the podcast just reach out at educating Laura on Instagram hope you have a wonderful weekend bye